Good morning. It's good to be with you today. It is the Lord's Day. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Amen. My wife and I just got back on Friday from a trip to see our kids in Vegas and her mom and dad. And then my mom and dad as well. And I tried to package up the weather and bring it back with me. But my suitcases were full of baby gifts for my daughter, Mariah. So sorry, I couldn't bring the 75 and blue sky sunny back with me. But it sure was a shock to wake up to 45 and rainy after a little over a week of that weather. This morning we're continuing in our study of Hebrews, right? I have been gone. Chapter 7 is what I was told. So hopefully you haven't studied that or I haven't skipped a chapter. So turn to Hebrews 7 and as we turn there we'll go to prayer not only for ourselves, but also Pastor Mike and Jordan Grace as they minister there at Calvary St. George, which is a church that is very near and dear to my heart, not to give too much history, but when I was on staff at Calvary Spring Valley in Vegas, I had the blessing of multiple times traveling and teaching at that church. In that church, um, the pastor there, Rick Nehrud, um, interesting story, the original pastor was a, a different man. I won't tell you his name because you might go try and hunt him down, but he was pastoring the church. Rick had just graduated from Calvary Bible College and come on board as this man's assistant, had been there for about a year, never taught a message in front of a congregation. And that previous pastor walked in, dropped his keys on Rick's desk and said, I'm out of here. Just like that. The next thing Rick did was call myself and the pastor I served under in Vegas and we jumped in the car and drove up there and Rick's like what am I supposed to do and we said I'm not ready to be a senior pastor and we said too late (laughs) you're the assistant the senior's gone guess what And it was rough for Rick for a couple of years, but to see what the Lord has done with that church where they're at is nothing short of just the hand of God in Rick's life, over Rick's life, and through his life. And um, you can pray for him. It's public knowledge now. But he's been diagnosed with early-onset dementia. Um, So they're dealing with that and determining future and history uh, going forward of the church. Um, But um, Rick is such an inspiration to me as I watch him walk through his trial. So be praying for them as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And even as we pray for our time in your word here, we're mindful of the fact that Pastor Mike and Jordan Grace and uh, the team are down at Calvary St. George ministering as well. And so we pray not only that your spirit would fill this place and teach us, but also that you would inhabit 
and fill to overflowing Pastor Mike and Jordan as they ministered the congregation there in St. George. Lord, use this time, we pray, to grow us and mold us more into the image of your Son. Teach us what we need to hear from you this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So as we dive into Hebrews 7, we're picking up on a discussion that the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, apart from the Holy Spirit, of course, launched out in in chapter 5, verse 10. And then the writer went on kind of an interlude, a side trip um, that tied to the thought and then came back to it in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. And now he's going to launch in to a study here in chapter 7 of Melchizedek the priesthood of Melchizedek, and also how Jesus is of that order and how that makes Jesus greater than the priest and the high priest that they had there as the nation of Israel. Now, interesting to note a couple of things as we dive in. The zenith of chapter 7 for me, maybe not for you, is actually found late in verse 25. And I want to read that to set the stage. Verse 25 says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so clearly, the writer is trying to paint Jesus as our Savior, who is greater than all things. And he alone makes intercession for us. He alone bought our salvation through his broken body, through his shed blood, which will celebrate communion this morning. And so through his life and death, he saved us. But through his life after death, he ever makes intercession on our behalf before the Father and continues, as it were, to save us in that sense being at the right hand of the Father as our intercessor and our advocate, the Bible says. And this morning, I think the big word for us is intercessor. How Jesus stood in the gap. How there existed a gap in the days of the priests, in the days of the Levitical priesthood, how there remain this gap between God and man, in a sense. And it's Jesus that came and took down that gap. Remember, it was the priest that approached God on people's behalf. The people couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and approach God themselves. The high priest did that. But in Christ now, we have complete access to the Father. He broke down the veil, took away the gap that existed between us and the Father through his own life. And that, to me, is the zenith point of this whole discussion of chapter 7. And, of course, chapter 7 is one of those chapters that many people have difficulty with in understanding, but it's really, hopefully, by the end of this morning, going to be opened up to you if it's ever been confusing to you. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting character, and I don't want to spend all morning 
I've been told to watch my time. I don't know if that means I'm long-winded. I blame it in that I don't talk as fast as I used to. But um, the purpose of chapter 7, listen to me, was not to teach us about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is just a tool the author is using to prove a point. He's made a statement that Jesus is our high priest. And the Jew would have looked at that and said, how can Jesus be our high priest? He's not of the tribe of Levi. He's not of the lineage of Aaron. There's been, between Aaron and the time of Christ, there's been something like 84 high priests. In the tribe of Levi, those who weren't of the lineage of Aaron, they were those who took on the lesser roles in the temple. And so they would look and go, but Jesus, he's not of the lineage of Aaron. He's not even of the priestly tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. It's out of bounds for you to call him our high priest because our high priest has to be of a specific lineage that was set forth by the Father. And so the writer here, systematically like a surgeon or a good lawyer, that's not an oxymoron, a good lawyer starts to dissect and flay open and expose through their own writings the reality of how Jesus is actually greater by eliciting this conversation on Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an interesting character. We only see him in two other areas of the Bible in the Old Testament. And that would be in Genesis 14. You can write that down. And then reference in the Messianic Psalm 110. And that's it. That's all we know of Melchizedek. It's in Genesis chapter 14. The five kings from the north had come down and um, made the five kings of the south, two of them being the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, their vassal um, reigns or kingdoms. And for 12 years, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three kings put up with that. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, the five kings of the north, led by Kedolaomer, that's a tough word for my tongue to say, came down and laid waste the kingdom. Interestingly, at this time, Lot, Abram's nephew, had been living in Sodom, and he was taken captive. Abraham hears about this because one man escaped and come and told him, Abraham, you got to check it out if you haven't read the story. He gathers up his 318 servants who were all raised in his home, it says, and he takes off after these five different kings and their armies. Now, if you looked at a map, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah are down on the east side of the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea, in the extreme southern section of Israel, these five kings take Lot and the captives and the spoils 
all up to Dan, which is in the extreme north of Israel, even as far as Damascus, which isn't even in Israel, it's in Syria, modern-day Syria. And yet these Abram and his 318 servants chase them down, lay waste to them, it says, grabs all the captives, all the spoils, and makes his way back. And the king of Sodom comes to him as they get into the territory to thank him and says all the spoil is his. He just wants the people. And Abraham says, I don't want any of the spoil. I think in his mind it was filthy lucre, you know, coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the like. He says, you can have it. And it's at that point that Melchizedek shows up on the scene. And I just want to read to you that passage as we dive in, because I think it's important that for understanding what's given in chapter 7. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, this is 14, Genesis, beginning in verse 18, brought out bread and wine. There's a table over there. He was the priest of God Most High, or El Elyon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And so, as we would consider that, we now jump back to Hebrews 7 and continue the thought as it uh, relates to Melchizedek. As the writer writes, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, or a tithe, first being translated king of right, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is written that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so we see this conversation and gather a little bit more information about Melchizedek that lends weight to what it says in Psalm 110 
about Melchizedek. Let me read that to you. You, um, you are a priest forever in that messianic psalm relating to the Messiah according to the order of Melchizedek. We see that written in chapter 5, verse 6. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 10. And we see it again in chapter 6, verse 20. And it's this Melchizedek who the writer is drawing an analogy to to prove how Jesus can be our high priest. And in fact, as he goes through the rest of the chapter, the greatest, the great high priest, the only high priest we need as believers. But take note when it says of the order of Melchizedek, some things about Melchizedek. First off, he's the king of Salem. Psalm 76, 2 relates God to be the God of Salem, specifically relating to Jerusalem. So it's thought that this king of Salem, this one Melchizedek, was a king whose reign was established in Jerusalem. He's also called the king of righteousness. In Salem, it means peace or shalom in the Hebrew, um, meaning peace. So he is not only the king over Jerusalem, which is ultimately God's city, right? He's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. He, we don't know who his mother and father are. He has no beginning of days. We don't know when he was born. He has no end of days. We don't know when he died. And in that sense, he lives on because we don't have that information. Now, some people want to take all of that, combine it together, and therefore say what we see here is a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Christ, or in Melchizedek, in Melchizedek we have a Christophany. I'm not sure I subscribe to that. I suppose it could be. But for me, because he's made like the Son of Man, or like the Messiah, or like Christ, that word like would indicate he's not but he's like him. And how is he like Christ? Well, first off, the ultimate king of righteousness is who? Jesus. The ultimate king of peace is who? Jesus. He had no earthly father because his father was divine and in heaven he has no heavenly mother as God. He has no beginning of days. He always has been. He is and always will be. He has no end of days. So Melchizedek, in his type, in the analogy, is made to us in what we know about him in the likeness of Jesus. He is the king of Jerusalem. He is the king of righteousness. Why is it important to us then that he's made in the image or in the likeness of Christ? Because when we look at Christ, we see him as the ultimate king of righteousness. His rule is in righteousness. The king of a kingdom has control. 
He's the one that divvies out. Ultimately, righteousness only can come through our king, Jesus, who is the king of righteousness. And the order is important, too. He's first the king of righteousness, then the king of peace. Because apart from righteousness, there is no peace with God. And so we see the writer first describing this Melchizedek in verses 1 through 10, so to set himself up to then compare him to Jesus. A couple other points to draw out. In verse 5, I think for the third time, the writer uses the word consider. Consider. You know, this fellowship's name is Selah. It means stop and reflect, or rest and reflect. Stop and think, pause and ponder. And in verse 4, he says, Consider how great this man Melchizedek must, must have been. Abraham they see him as the father of who they are. You are, when they spoke of their God, he was the God of Abraham, then of Isaac, then of Jacob. They see themselves as being birthed from the loins, as it were, of Abraham. When it came to men, there were no greater to the Jew than Abraham. So consider, the writer is saying, how great this one Melchizedek must have been that our father Abraham paid tithes to him, gave of the spoils to him, which, by the way, had been instituted by God that the Jews would pay tithes to the priests that were of the lineage of Levi. And yet you have this Melchizedek. We don't have his genealogy. He clearly, listen, he's clearly not of the lineage of Abraham. I mean, when he came walking up, Abraham didn't go, oh, Mel, how you doing, buddy? It's been a long time since I saw you. There was no family relation here. He was outside, as it were, yet described by God himself as a priest of the God Most High. That's an important point, isn't it? He's a priest of the God Most High, and yet not of the priestly lineage. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the writer of Psalm 110 picked up on that. He said, the Holy Spirit writing, the Messiah will not be of the order of Aaron. He will be of the order of Melchizedek. Who, now coming forward into the book of Hebrews, who our father Abraham saw as a priest of the Most High God and offered tithes and received a blessing. And clearly, we know that the greater always blesses the lesser. And so he makes this, the writer picking up on Melchizedek and what it says in Psalm 110 is making the argument that God himself is the one that declares who is high priest and who can be a high priest. And in this case, Melchizedek who wasn't from the lineage of Abraham, not 
from the Levitical priesthood, predating Psalm 110 by some 400 years and predating the giving of the law where the Levitical priesthood was established, existed as a priest of the Most High God. Are you following me? Stick with me here. I know it's dry and my voice doesn't help, but hey, it's important that we recognize verse 6, a really important point. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It was only two chapters earlier in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, where the Abrahamic um, covenant, the promise of God was given to Abraham. So in short, it says that I'm going to bless you, and all who bless you I will bless, and all who curse you I will curse, I will give you a land for your posterity. Your seed shall be as the number of grains of sand on the seashore, and I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. And it's this one who had received promises directly from God who paid a tithe to this one Melchizedek. And he wraps up that section by saying, Hey, here mortal men received tithes, but there, back then, Melchizedek received him, of whom we have no end of days. And in that sense, his order, his priesthood lives on. And then he kind of puts a little dig in there where he says, Hey, by the way, even Levi, the father of the priestly tribe, in essence, so to speak, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham because he came from the lineage of Abraham. And so he's not only greater than Abraham, he's also greater than Levi, and the priestly tribe of Levi. Therefore, verse 11, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated the altar. So speaking of Jesus, he who we're relating this to came from a different tribe, not the priestly tribe. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek or the priesthood of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment. Remember, the priesthood was established through commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he, the Father, testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. 
For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So now he switches tack, having given this picture of Melchizedek, he now relates what we know of Melchizedek's priesthood to Jesus and says another priesthood arose through Jesus. I know your question is, how can Jesus be a high priest? The answer is found in the example of Melchizedek. It was by the oath and command of God that Jesus is the high priest according not to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And the precedent had already been established by God back before the law was ever given. And so when we get down to verse 18, there's this annulling of the former commandment. Why? Because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Because no man could be made perfect by the law in the work of the priest. That's why every year the priest had to go in. Every year he had to enter in on the Day of Atonement and offer up atoning sacrifices for the people. He would not slay himself. He would slay bulls and rams and sheep and even at times pigeons. He would offer up um, a blood offering sacrifice that would cover over the sin, but the gap that existed represented by the veil still existed between man and God. And in that, your only hope was in a system of sacrifices. But now, in our high priest of the order of Melchizedek, who himself did not slay a bull or a ram or sheep or birds, but himself, as once and for all, as we'll read, offered himself up and eliminated the gap. That's why in him it says, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better home. Under the priesthood of Levi, we stood afar off from God, separated from God, and the priests would represent us. But now, we ourselves have the blessing of drawing near to God through Christ. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to Melchizedek. So, inasmuch as Jesus was made high priest with an oath made by the Father, where the priests here on earth, through the tribe of Levi, there was no oath. If you were of the lineage of Aaron, the eldest son, and became the next high priest. There was no oath. It was just a passing along of the torch. Yet the Lord himself, Yahweh, swore of the Messiah and gave an oath, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus had become a surety or guarantee of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death 
from continuum, but he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, as we began in verse 25, he is also able to say to the uttermost. Notice that it doesn't say, say from the uttermost. We know for sure Jesus does save from the uttermost, but that is not what is being spoken here. If I had you all give testimony, some of you would have stories of being saved from the uttermost or the guttermost or some other most. And surely Jesus saves from those things. But that's not what the writer is saying here. He saves to the uttermost, meaning in our vernacular, to the max, to the maximum. There is no greater salvation than that which is found in Christ. You can't be any more saved. You can't be delivered at any greater level then we would be saved and delivered through Christ. He's saved to the uttermost, right? So he gave his life to save us from the guttermost, but he lives to save us to the uttermost, meaning one day we can be with him in eternity in heaven. For such a high priest was fitting, not that we deserved it. That's not the meaning of word fitting there. Well, of course he wanted to save me. Look at me. No, not fitting in that sense. For such a high priest was fitting in the sense of he met our very need of a Savior. So it's fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and become, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. And so this one Jesus is ultimately being of the order of Melchizedek and the proof being that Melchizedek is greater than the high priest of Israel. Himself is a high priest by the oath of the Father, our great high priest. And once again in Christ, we have the king and the priest being joined back together as the king of righteousness and peace, as the priest who offered up not daily, but once for all, not rams and bulls and sheep and birds, but himself, delivered himself up for the sins of the people that we might be saved. He is our great and ever lives to be that great intercessor and advocate and the Savior that we need. And I don't know where you're at this morning. When I think of the word intercessor, a funny story came to my mind, not that Jesus being our intercessor is funny. But it's like this man who had some personal issues going on. 
And he knew of a woman, I don't know why it's always a woman who are the prayer warriors, but he knew of a woman who was a prayer warrior at his office. And he considered I should ask her to pray for me. And he knew she had like her daily top ten list of people she'd pray for in intercessory prayer. So he went to her and he told her that he was having some issues and asked if she would pray for him. Not expecting her to because he was sure she already had her top ten list for the day. And she responded, well, of course, three of the people I've been praying for has died. I have plenty of room. <laughs> okay. Listen. Come back to me. In an odd sort of way, that's in line with the discussion we've been having between the Levitical priesthood or man, the fleshly commandment, the fleshly way, as it were, of approaching God. That was merely an example of what it meant to intercede, but was a foreshadowing of the great intercessor who would come in the future. We don't need an intercessor like that woman. Like, it reminds me of the, um, the woman who, whose husband died, so his brother married her, and then he died, and his brother married her, and, he gets down to one of the later brothers and he's like, I'm not sure I want to marry. <laughs> I'm like, if I was the third brother, I would have been questioning it, right? We don't need that kind of intercessor on our behalf. We need an intercessor that brings hope. We need an intercessor that breaks down the gap the wall, the veil that exists between us and God. And that's not found in the Levitical priesthood. Yes, God gave that priesthood as a foreshadowing of the great high priest and the great sacrifice that would be made. He instituted that, but he also forethought out the reality of the objections that would come to Christ, who was going to be of the lineage of Judah, by sending Melchizedek to Abraham to bless him and receive a tithe, knowing that when Christ came, Melchizedek would be that example that he could use to prove out the greatness of this high priest that we have named Jesus. And all of us need an intercessor who can stand before the Lord without an intercessor, who can endure the day of his coming, who can stand when he appears. Who can stand before God? The answer is no one. And in the Old Testament, that intercessory role was given to the Levitical priests. But now, in this new covenant established in Christ, he alone replaces all the priests Israel ever had. There's no longer a need for us to figure it out. It's been established in Christ. First Timothy says, For there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself a ransom for all. Romans 8, 31 through 34 then, says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge? against God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who lives, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. One mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus. So the question this morning is do you recognize your need for the high priest? Have you? You're only in one of four conditions. You have, and daily you're thankful for it, and you've received the forgiveness. That's been offered. Or you know you need one. But you're not relying on him. But your own efforts. Like the priest offering up your own sacrifice. Yet there still remains the gap. Because you're not fully trusting. In the sacrifice of the high priest. Jesus. Not that you're not saved. But in your heart, you feel a distance between you and God. Or you never received him as your Savior and High Priest. Or I guess lastly, you don't think you need one. Those are the only four conditions we can be in here this morning. But do you recognize your need for a high priest? Are there things that are separating us from the Lord? The good news is, whatever it is that might be separating you, it doesn't matter. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of your guilt, regardless of sin, you do have an advocate, Christ, our high priest, who offered himself up for you and me. We've read in Hebrews chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That should be good news to us because he came and died to save us from the guttermost, but he lives ever to make intercession to save us to the uttermost. Amen? Amen. So as we go to the communion table, I ask that you would ponder Jesus, our great high priest, who offered himself up a ransom for many. Amen?